0: Right, so welcome to Spark Church. I am thrilled to have you all here this weekend as we kind of dive into a preparation for what we're going to be doing next weekend, and that means that this is a twofer. So come this weekend and and come next weekend because you'll be all ready for it. Um, in order to do that, we're going to go back a little bit um, to the founding of Spark. Uh, what years ago? Twenty eleven. Kevin and I were sitting on vacation in. Um, Puerto Vallarta, which was like the one of the first and last times we'd ever had that kind of vacation together, which was lots of fun, and uh, we were on a rooftop bar that played a lot of 80s music um, at midnight, and it was one of those all-inclusive places, and if you know my husband, then you also know the word buffet follows him wherever he goes, so, you know, if you can have all you can eat all day long, then you do, right? Like, I, you just get your money's worth, so, yes, we have some people preach, brother, preach, Yeah. Um, so at that place, we started dreaming about really starting Spark and starting to move forward with it with a group of friends and founders, many who are here today. And we sat down five words that described um, our faith personally and Jesus, how we practiced our faith of Christianity, and also five words that we wanted to be uh, key values for whatever community we were part of. And those five values are on your screen. Love, reputation, reconciliation, rescue, and resurrection. And as we kind of fleshed out those five values, the first one, love, felt foundational for us, right? This is God's love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That God so deeply loves all of creation that he sent his son. And that that love of God can be seen from Genesis chapter 1 all the way through as this beautiful woven thread through the end of our book, Revelation. So from garden to garden to garden to garden— we get to see this incredible love of God. And as God so deeply loves us, then he gives us this incredibly, the first command that you expect the God of everything to give a people, love me. And he says to Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And then in Leviticus, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus added and said that when he was asked, what's the number one commandment, he answered that command from Deuteronomy, Shema Israel, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and the second is like unto it, he said, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the commandments fall under these. Jesus also gave us the command to love our enemies. So we felt like, hey, if we just kind of talk about following Jesus and trying to be a community that exemplifies the values of God in our community at large, trying to be that type of church, then we have to start begin middle end with love. And there's not really a way out of this love box. You can't go anywhere else in the scripture and find something that trumps this card. Everything is here. So this is the central commandment value also for spark. And then we wanted to elevate and raise the reputation of God in our community. Oftentimes, if you watch the news, if you are part of um, larger tech conversations at Silicon Valley or um, larger conversations about morality, you'll hear people say things like, you know, all evil in the world comes from religion. Something just people throw out there or all wars in the world are started by people of religions. And we have all these conversations where sort of God is getting a bad rep. And there's this beautiful story in Exodus when God's pretty angry at Israel and he says to Moses, Get out of the way, I'm gonna take these people out, and then I'll just make you a holy nation. And Moses, cued by God, says, No, no, Lord, but what will they say about you in Egypt? What about your rep? What about your reputation? God, what will they say about you? If you're that kind of God, don't you remember all the promises they'll say that you couldn't, you couldn't take us out. You couldn't really fulfill on the promises you gave to the forefathers. Don't forget who you are, the very character of who you are. And we wanted to create a church community that lived in such a way as to elevate the reputation of Jesus in our world, both near and far. And we do that through study. That's why you have the word of God there. We do that through deep uh, workings of the text. We do that through a lot of wrestling and through the rest of our values as we live those out. the next one being reconciliation. And as we talked about reconciliation on that rooftop bar in Puerto Vallarta, uh, Kevin and I talked about how we, through Christ, have been given the ministry of reconciliation. That Christ has reconciled us under the Father, and that he has called each one of us to be part of that reconciliation as well. So whether racial reconciliation, which has been a deep part of our heart and our life for many decades, Kevin and I, also through a lot of interfaith work, which is why you are sitting in a synagogue named Congregation Chaim. And how that all came about was simply that I was already friends with the people in this community here. They had already watched us. They had already um, shared life and shared space with us so that when we got to the point where honestly we didn't even ask them, we just said, we're going to start a community, we're going to start a church, they said, would you like to meet here? And all of you are sitting here as a result of the implementation of the value of reconciliation in our lives and in the life of this church. Because it's not a common story for synagogues to invite Christians in and say, come and share space with us. For a whole host of reasons, some which we'll talk about today. So we're deeply humbled by this. We're humbled that Rabbi Ari um, comes and shares with our community and that you receive him so generously and so well. We're humbled that when Etz Chaim came to us and they said, you know, it's been three years, they've been incredibly generous with giving us space here, incredibly generous. And when they said, you know, it's been three years you've been here, and, you know, we might wanna renegotiate your lease, I was like, yeah, sure, I was just waiting for when that's gonna happen, because it have been so generous to help us start. They've really planted Spark Church with their generosity and their love. They came and they said, we just wanna start with letting you know that we love having you here, we love this relationship, and we want it to continue. What we want to talk about is, would you like to try to install some of your stuff here permanently so you don't have to load it in and load it out every weekend? And then, you know, we'll use it during the week, too, and we can share some. And we'll give you some space for a classroom, and we can talk about more going forward. And that is in large part, I mean, that's all God. And it's due to a concentrated commitment by everyone in this room to love this community well. You don't bring in your bacon-wrapped shrimp on a stick. Thank you for not doing that, right? We make sure that we respect the important rules of kosher keeping here. When I watch us clean up this space, I see you leave it better than we found it. Kwame is here every Sunday afternoon putting away the chairs and tables with a whole bunch of others, but sweeping And putting those things, and and all of us, all of us together saying we will care and respect this space and the people that are here. And we don't have to agree on everything. And all of that is because you guys have this great desire to see rescue come to this world, to see these bridges get built locally and afar. That you start to see these, these bridges starting to be built between people groups. And we believe in a God of rescue. We believe that God has a desire to see rescue happen in this world, that he has an ultimate rescue plan for all of us, but that each one of us, as he rescued Israel out of Egypt, we've all been rescued. We've all been rescued from sin and death. And we get to extend that rescue. To the world, So whether it's through fighting against human trafficking locally or abroad, whether it's through raising money for caring for refugees, whether it's through supporting sparkers to go and try to investigate um, the refugee situation so we can figure out what to do, through racial reconciliation work, through all of these things, we're bringing tiny little bits and pieces of rescue. When you smile at one another on a Sunday... When you welcome people here, when you find a spot for them to sit with you, when you say hi, if you haven't said hi yet, say hi, there's a little bit of rescue that happens. When our amazing team provides food and hospitality, there's rescue. There's a little bit of rescue that comes. And we've seen people who are really literally hungry coming. And we're thrilled that we get to feed them in all those ways. And ultimately, this all leads to resurrection, that we believe through Christ, we are given the opportunity for full new life, ultimately, and day by day, that every single day I am saved and given that chance for new life. And as all of this leans into what we're going to be doing next weekend, I wanted just to focus for a few moments on Jesus's words in Matthew chapter 5. Now, he's got a lot of words. We just did a Sermon on the Mount series, but let's just focus on this one in particular. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet not only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Easy peasy. Just check that off your list. I'll just love everybody and love my neighbor and my enemy. By the way, nowhere in your Bible does it say, hate your enemies. Jesus isn't quoting the Old Testament, when he says that, he's quoting a teaching from the Dead Sea Scrolls, from the Essene uh, monastic-type community, who were teaching like a more of a zealot response to the Roman overlords and also the um, compromising priests. So, I find this teaching of Jesus incredibly difficult. In fact, there is a professor named Professor David Flusser, who was an Orthodox Jewish uh, professor, and he studied specifically um, the life of Jesus. He um, was, I believe, German and then um, immigrated to Israel, an incredible scholar of blessed memory. And Professor Flusser, in studying the synoptic gospels in particularly, studying Jesus, remained an Orthodox Jew. He said that very unique to the teaching of Jesus was exactly this passage on loving your enemy that you could find a lot of other echoes in rabbinic literature of other things that Jesus was sort of hinting on, but that specifically unique to Jesus was this teaching, love your enemy. And as, Fluser, as Professor Flusser was speaking about that to a crowd in Jerusalem, somebody raised their hand and said, Professor Flusser, are you saying that that's what sets Christianity apart from the other world religions? And Professor Flusser said, oh, no, 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 no. I haven't met Christians doing this. I have simply told you that this is what I have seen that Jesus taught that was unique. Now, we hear a lot on how we are supposed to demonstrate our love of Christ. We hear a lot um, in the media, in people who are co-opting teachings of Jesus or Christianity. We hear a lot from others that the way that we will most fervently demonstrate our love for Jesus is through our very strong arguments, our apologetic arguments, our stands on issues of life or sexuality or taxes or whatever, uh, 10 commandments in the school. We don't want to put this in the school, by the way. This is too hard. Um, that would be very difficult to do, right? Like just 10 commandments in the school, not the Beatitudes, that would be too difficult. Um, All of those types of things. And yet we very rarely hear people teach on this. But you guys just sang that song. They will know that we are Christians by our love, which Jesus actually said. They will know that you are my followers by your love. This is actually a really hard thing to do, which is why I think we keep going back to the Ten Commandments, or other easier teachings. It's, it's so much easier to point and say, well, I just won't do that one bad thing. I'm just going to avoid killing somebody this week in adultery. I feel like I can just avoid those two, right? But how do I really love God and love my enemy? And then who is my enemy? Love your enemies, do good to those who... What about if they're Muslim? Okay, I'm going to start over from the beginning. And let me know where I lost you, right? <laughs> And you can insert anything into there, right? But Jesus, what about if they're gay? What about if they're black? What about if they're white? What about if they're a police officer? What about if they are blah, 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 blah? Uh, Republican, Democrat, nothing, all things, all of those kinds of things? Whatever it is, we have to note that as Jesus teaches, he does not give us a, a really helpful asterisk, that a footnote at the bottom that says, except for the people that make you feel deeply uncomfortable. And as we try to love our enemies, we can look back specifically into the practice of Martin Luther King Jr. in the civil rights movement and lean into what was actual rigorous discipline and practice. And Martin Luther King Jr. gave a wonderful sermon on loving our enemies. He said, well, why should we do that? Because Jesus said so. But even more than that, if you needed something more, if it's possible, because returning hate for hate multiplies hate. Hate scars the soul and distorts the personality, and it's just as injurious to the person who hates as to the person who is hated. It's hurting everybody. And love is the only force capable of turning an enemy into a friend. That's the gospel story, everyone. That for God so loved the world. It's because of God's deep love for the world, for all of us, that we are able to be turned from enemies of God into friends of God. And we must love our enemies because only by loving them can we know God and experience the beauty of his holiness. And that's all of 1 John. John just says, if you don't love God, you cannot know God. If you don't love others, you cannot know God. For God is love. Now, as we then step into what we're going to be doing next week, which is the multi-faith Voices for Peace and Justice Peace Walk, I just wanted to let you know that peacemaking is hard, and it's humbling, and it's lifelong work. So you're not going to get to come next Sunday and go, well, I did that peace walk, so I'm just going to check that loving my enemy thing off my list. I'm done, right? I'm great. I did peacemaking. We're good. Let's just move on. I think we've got this covered. It's very humbling. It's deeply challenging. It's not for the faint of heart. And I am the first person to tell you this, even though I've been doing this work for a couple decades. It's really hard for me. It's hard. And I've been practicing and I still find it difficult at times because it's so much easier to be in my own echo chamber it's easier to be with people that get me, that have grace for me and all of my mistakes, that I can speak that same interior language and all of our code words. And, you know, you can just say, well, God bless them. You know, and the person knows you don't really mean that, right? You're just kind of being a little, so bless their heart, right? You just hear me. That's your sarcastic way of trying to say a non-Christian thing in a Christian context. So all of those code words that we do in the midst of one another, where well, we try to have these conversations, um, and, Even the way we pray in a group together, how we speak to one another, non-liturgical Christians where we don't have like a prayer book, we say weird things. It's like a weird game of telephone that we're looping other people into the room through, right? And I find myself every once in a while in a group of, of other fellow pastors, and typically the prayers go like this, you know, dear God, we just want to thank you for these brothers and sister in our room today. And so I get looped in with singular, and that's fine. I'm, I'm there. It's good. And then it goes forward like, you know, I was just telling John this last week, Jesus, about how— And I'm like, Jesus already knows you talked to John. Let's all be clear. You're just telling me through the context of a prayer, and now I'm bored. So, like, I need eye contact if you want me to pay attention to that kind of story. But with all of these things, we do. We know how that goes. We know when to bow our heads, most of us. We know when to close our eyes. My daughter likes to police who isn't closing their eyes at the dinner table for prayer, right? Grandma, close your eyes. We're praying, Grandma. Phoebe, you close your eyes. You're the one looking around. Okay. So we know all of these things. And when I start thinking about my faith and my faith practice, the songs that come so deep to my heart, the ones that I've carried with me all of my life, the ones that bring deep comfort to me, they don't always bring the same comfort to others who aren't of my same faith tradition. And that can be a painful moment because Jesus is the sweetest name I know. And I am serious about that. I sang those hymns growing up. I still sing those hymns. His name is like honey on my lips. His, his word is like water to my soul. And I am deeply in love with the person of Jesus. But when I say that name in a multi-faith voiced context, which, by the way, this is multi-faith and not interfaith, meaning that we are all allowed to be exactly who we are supposed to be. No one's trying to change anybody. No one's trying to convert anybody. You don't have to not say Jesus. I just have to know that when I say that name, for others with different histories than mine, it can be painful. And that's hard. It's really hard for me. How is the name that is the sweetest name that I have ever known bringing you so much pain when I say it. Why is that happening? Well, apart from 2,000 years of some pretty difficult history, where crusades occurred, where we had moments of passion plays, where the church would round up all the Jews in the community and forcibly bring them into the church so that they would have to watch the passion play as we accused all the Jews of killing Jesus and forced them to convert or killed them or ghettoized them. Or um, as edicts were passed down and they started with how to find yourself a Jew, how to secret out a Jew. Do they have a fire going on Shabbat? If they don't, they're probably a Jew. Do they have a pointy nose? All of these types of things. Rather than going through all of the horrors that I could— account for going back to the years 200 and 300, really after the apostle Paul passes away. And the early church fathers are trying to make sense of this. And Gentiles who didn't have a connection with the Hebrew story, the Israelite story, started reading and misunderstanding a lot of things. Let's just focus on something that didn't happen all that long ago in terms of world history. 1543, where Martin Luther wrote a book called On the Jews and Their Lies. Now, I grew up Lutheran, and I remember in the 80s when the Lutheran church made a formal apology for the anti-Semitic teachings of Martin Luther. And that church, my church growing up, did that throughout at various different times in history, and and they are still needing to do it again. And there was a vote just a couple weeks ago that's pretty anti-Semitic in nature from the Lutheran Federation, and so they're going to have to do this hard work again. But if we just focus on something that happened in the 1500s with Martin Luther. Now, all of us here who are not Catholic or not practicing Catholic, we are in the Protestant tradition because we protested. And Martin Luther was part of that movement. He was one of the key leaders of pulling uh, Christianity, uh, a practice of Christianity outside of the Catholic Church into Protestantism. So if you grew up Lutheran or Baptist or Presbyterian or all of those things, you're, we're all Protestants together. When Martin Luther first started um, teaching and writing, he actually had some fairly benevolent things to say about the Jews, and the the Jewish people were like, "Wow, this guy's a lot better than the Pope, like who's you know in inquisitions and all these other things. So maybe this will be good." But after his um, Feelings of generous overtures were not reciprocated with mass conversions to Christianity. He got angry and he got hurt and he got frustrated and he wrote a treaty that is pretty appalling. And I hesitate to even read any of it because it's so upsetting. So you could just go on Wikipedia and see some of these things or pull up the book. I hope don't pay for it. Um, but after his anger and the horrifying things that he says, he advises Christians to carry out seven remedial actions, and the first one is burn down Jewish synagogues and schools and warn people against them and refuse to let Jews in your house. All Jewish religious writings should be taken away, and rabbis should be forbidden to preach. No protection shall be given to Jews on the highways. Lending will be prohibited. Um take their money and only give it back to them if actually convert and only make them do hard labor. Now this is Martin Luther. So we can sit here today on this side of history and go, well, that's why I'm not Lutheran. Forget it. There's a lot of great stuff in Lutheranism too, right? We're all here in large part because of what he did. It's not that easy. This is ingrained, this theology of contempt and this anti-Semitism, it's ingrained in a lot of our Christian teaching. So when I meet an Orthodox Jew who won't make the addition sign when doing math because it reminds them too much of the cross, that their relatives and generations for generations have been killed under the sign of the cross— That's the reason why the name of Jesus isn't sweet to them like it is to me. And that's part of my history that I have to own. Because if I try to go do multi-faith work and peace work with Jews or Muslims or other Christians, or if I want to do it with police officers... All of that has to start from a point of knowing my own history and knowing my own sin and deeply, humbly coming forward and saying, yeah, I'm part of some deep wrongs. The traditional white church in America has been part of some very deep wrongs towards our African-American brothers and sisters. We have a lot that we need to own. And when the Apostle Paul said that Jesus would be a stumbling block, this isn't what he meant. He meant that he crucified God who rises again as a stumbling block. That's the stumbling block portion, not that in the name of Jesus, people would have been killed and harassed and persecuted. Now, thank God the teachings of Jesus are very different than our practice. And thank God we are on this side of history where we can sit down, read the book, read Matthew 5, and go, okay, this is what he meant. Love everyone. And we're going to do that. We're going to practice that. We're going to start, and now you'll understand again, the impetus for our values. We're going to start with love, and we're going to bring the reputation of Jesus back into our community, and we're going to work on reconciliation, racial reconciliation, interfaith reconciliation, Let's just all be humans, reconciliation, reconciliation in our homes. And that's going to bring a bit of rescue into our world. And that's going to bring new life. That'll see resurrection. Because all of this starts from a knowledge of where we've been. And this is going to hint right into Numbers chapter 5, of course. We're in the middle of numbers in the wilderness. You might be feeling right now like the sermon's in the middle of the wilderness for you. I had no idea about Martin Luther, and now I'm really deeply upset and worried. And I need to go eat a a giant bowl of pasta afterwards. So I just feel better about myself. Um... The Lord said to Moses, Numbers chapter 5, verse 5, Say to the Israelites, any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and is so unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. They must make full restitution for the wrong they have done, add a fifth of the value to it, and give it to all the person they have wronged. But if that person has no close relative to whom restitution can be made for the wrong... If they've passed away, if they're not there anymore, the restitution belongs to the Lord and must be given to the priest along with the ram with which atonement is made for the wrongdoer. All the sacred contributions the Israelites bring to a priest will belong to him. Sacred things belong to their owners, but what they give to the priest will belong to the priest. Now, the f- point and focus we want to look at is this portion, this confess portion. The Septuagint, and then from the Greek translation and then into the English, it will call this word confess, they will use the word declare or articulate. That the confessor, the person who has sinned, actually needs to articulate what it is that they have done. So part of our peacemaking, our reconciliation process, comes with us saying, we have to own this. We have to own this part of our history. And I need to articulate. I need to know it. I need to know that this is part of my history. This is a sin we, as the collective church, we have committed. Now, we can't go and find all those people from 1500s, 1600s, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s. Holocaust is not that long ago. Um, and Martin Luther's teachings did take significant hold in Germany and did feed into a lot of what was possible as a result of the Holocaust and bringing us the Holocaust. But God tells us that we can make full restitution for the wrong we've done to the Lord. That if we can't find these people to go and apologize to, we can still see restitution. We can still see reconciliation. We can come before God as God's people and say we are deeply sorry and we own this wrong and we want to make a difference and a change. And then we can practice that. Will you understand now the power of images like this? This is a powerful image. This is a world-changing image. This is an image that is unrivaled in history. People, this is hard work. And the psalmist declares in Psalm 34, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace. Seek shalom and pursue it. This doesn't happen... Shalom and peace, the making of the world being set to right. This doesn't happen unless we pursue it. We have to do things like this, and we have to do things like the thing we're going to do next Sunday, even as difficult and challenging as those moments can be for us. So let's talk about next weekend and what to expect. Well, this is what's happening. So Rabbi Chaim, who's the current rabbi here at Etz Chaim, called me and said, Sunday, September 11th, we want to do a peace walk with the multi-faith voices of peace, but it's going to start at 2, and we want to host it here at Etz Chaim. Well, reconciliation, that's our core value. And if the rabbi who is renting us this facility with this congregation comes and says, we want to do something on Sunday, I don't want to stand in his way, because we really love being here. And this gives us a chance to practice what we preach. That's what we're going to do next weekend. We're going to practice our preach. So we're going to come together on the 15th anniversary of 9-11, and we're going to remember lives that were lost. We'll remember the lives of first responders of the people that were lost. In fact, if you really want to work towards efforts for first responders, at 1030 at the Jewish Community Center, they're going to be doing care packages for first responders. Um, and for even canine dogs and things like that, so you can, canine dogs, that's a little redundant, canine companion animals for the officers. I don't know how did, canine officers, thank you. We'll edit all that out except for your great suggestion. Um, so there'll be a peacemaking uh, kit happening from 1030 to 1230. But then we're going to come here at 130. We're going to remember, we're going to honor, and then we're going to practice love, reputation, and reconciliation. It's going to be fun and wonderful and amazing, and it'll be hard, too. Uh, these are the groups represented, and I'm just going to, Episcopals, Muslims, Baha'i, uh, Mas, Berkeley, Masjid, Betham, Emek, Bracha, Etzchayim, Kuala Met, Council on Islamic Relations, Baptists, Congregationalists, Lutherans, Methodists, Presbyterians. I mean, you can hear the fights breaking out just between the Christians already, right? Um, all of us, the Palo Alto Human Relations Commission, uh, South Bay Islamic Situation, Spark Church, Stanford University, Unitarians, Episcopals, we're all going to get here together. And in addition to that, the chief of police of Palo Alto is going to come, which is a step for me personally to say, please come, let's start our conversation of reconciliation and work. And so at 1.30, we're going to gather and we'll have some activities out here for the kids and a chance just to come and get people ready. And then program's going to start at 2. And when that happens, Multi-Faith Voice is going to open the program. And then Etz Chaim is going to say a few words. And then Spark Church gets to say a few words because we're hosting the first stop. And then we're going to tie a string on one another's wrists showing, showing us how we're bound together with some words of peace. And then we're going to start a walk with a shofar blowing right outside. Um, here's our walk. We're going to go from Congregation X Chaim down here, and we're going to come up to Alma. We'll take a first right. The Unitarians and the Quakers are handing out water. Um, We're going to go to Middlefield. We're going to go up to AME Zion Church, where Pastor Coloma and his community are going to provide a couple gospel songs. And then we'll go up to this corner, and we're going to start up and hang out with the Catholics. We're going to sing a song or two. And then we're going to end up at Mitchell Park, where the Muslim Voices for Peace will be putting on a picnic for everybody, closing ceremony and a picnic for everyone. So please RSVP, because we need to know how many people to be feeding. Now, it's a great walk. If you can't walk it, you can drive it. You can do the stops with us. Um, If you have kids with bikes and strollers, we're going to have a decorating station outside, and they can get all ready and some face painting with doves and things like that. And so bring some good walking shoes. It's about two miles from here. After you're done, you can either walk back or you can catch the shuttle bus um, that's going to be making runs like at... 5, thirty, six, 6, 6.30, something like that to get people back here to cars. Okay. What are our concerns? Well, I'll be honest. The moment that you start talking about multi-faith conversation, I think a lot of us start to feel, particularly if we grew up in a more traditional community, that there's a lot of gray here and we should be starting to grab the corners of our arguments. No? Anyone? Um, I used to think this was a really bad bumper sticker. Anyone else? Um, I've seen a lot of Christian responses like this to that bumper shirt. Jesus said to love, not coexist. Um, Every knee shall bow, so we can't coexist because, you know, we have to do these things. But after France and Belgium and Turkey and Iraq and Iran and Afghanistan and 9-11 and Dallas and Orlando and Ferguson and all of the other things that we can be listing, I think this is a pretty good bar to aim for. Can we just coexist? Can we just recognize that this coming weekend, next weekend, we're going to be in a room with everybody else who's made in the image of God too? Can we just honor that God has made every single person on the face of this earth the image of God and they deserve our love and our care and our respect and that there isn't an asterisk under Jesus' teachings of love? We're supposed to love all. And when we come into these conversations, a lot of us, can feel like, so you can't do multi-faith because then you're not going to be able to be really true to your Christian call of, you know, converting or evangelizing or sharing the love of Jesus. Anyone? You guys are all like pretending like this isn't the background we all grew up in, right? Okay. Yeah. All right. Good. I don't want to be, and that oftentimes people will say, oh, if you're in a multi-faith conversation, you're just taking the coward's way out right? If you're finding room and space and you're creating place for Christians and Jews and Muslims and Baha'i and Hindu and Buddhist and everyone all to be together, then you have created space that isn't true to the gospel. Anyone? Okay, thank you. But I'm going to say now that I actually think living in the grays and living in the tension, and I'm going to quote a sparker here, um, takes a lot more courage, that it's moving from fear to courage, that can stand in these spots, stand in these places of tension and say, I'm going to do the hard thing. It's a lot easier for me to stand in my corner with everyone else that always, already agrees with me and never have a conversation with anyone that doesn't look like me, think like me, sound like me. It's just a lot easier. Living in these places of tension and honoring one another's faith traditions and experiences without trying to have a need to correct or to defend is very courageous it's brave and it's uncomfortable so what do we do when we feel uncomfortable now I think actually next Sunday is going to be lots of fun. It'll be like a little honeymoon period. It'll be the subsequent time when you go, oh, I'm going to invite my new friend out to dinner, and then you can't find a place to eat because you have dietary restrictions that you're working on, right? Um, or you can't go on certain days because some people don't drive on certain days. And, or they can't come to your home or whatever it might be. So what do we do when we feel uncomfortable? I think the first thing you have to do is acknowledge it. You have to ask yourself, why do I feel uncomfortable right now? Oh, yeah, I feel uncomfortable because I feel like I'm supposed to hand this person a tract, and I'm not. That's the only way I feel uncomfortable, right? Um, I am gonna pray about that. And I'm gonna remember that Jesus is real and I'm gonna practice love. One of the challenges that we all have in these moments is that we can feel like it's up to us to shine that light for Jesus. And and I grew up in part of a faith tradition, particularly later on, I went to like sort of um, big evangelism conferences and stuff like that. And I remember youth pastors saying things to me like from the front, say as a youth pastor trainee, like you got to get these kids into Jesus. And if you don't get these kids into Jesus, then the day that you die, you're going to be standing there and Jesus is going to be right in front of you. And they're going to be walking through the door and they're going to look at you. And as Jesus sends them to hell to burn forever, then you are going, they're going to look at you in your eyes. And I'm serious, people actually said this to me on more than one occasion, that kid's going to look at you in your eyes and be like, why didn't you tell me about Jesus? And I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds horrible, right? Now all of that's motivated from a deep sense of guilt and fear that I'm going to be responsible for the eternal torment of somebody in hell forever. Um, it doesn't give them any responsibility or Jesus any responsibility. It's just how guilty will you feel? Therefore, you must present the Romans road, the four spiritual laws. You have to draw the, the cartoon with the cross and the bridge. You have to pray from right there. And, and didn't you get trained like, to look deeply into somebody's eyes and say, if you die today, right? If you're in that car on the way home right now, what's going to... And then, goodness, all of that. scary. So here's where I lean back. Jesus in Matthew 18 is at Caesarea Philippi, and he asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet. Some say you're John back from the dead. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of a dove, because that was not revealed to you by men but by my Father in heaven. This revelation that Jesus is God is not something that we reveal. It's something the Holy Spirit, illuminated through our lives, lived well, our practice of the love of Christ in our community can bring forth in someone's life. And the other thing we have to remember is that Jesus doesn't need you and me. In fact, sometimes it's better if we get out of the way entirely, right? Either he's real or he's not. And he doesn't necessarily need you or me in that moment to do the pressure car salesman sell of getting into the kingdom of heaven. Listen to the spirit and remember what looks like love for this person in that moment. Which means we're going to embrace some discomfort. We're going to remember scenes like this where just a month ago, Pope Francis walked in silence through the entire Auschwitz camp and simply prayed, He didn't try to convert anybody. He didn't pass out a tract. He didn't leave a copy of the King James in a bedside table on his way out, right? That's not what the love of Christ looks like when you walk through Auschwitz. He says things like this. Following Jesus makes taking up one's own cross to accompany him on his path an uncomfortable path that's not one of success or earthly glory, but which leads to true freedom and freedom from selfishness and sin. The discomfort that we feel as we pick up the cross, maybe that's not the discomfort of being the loud person in the room forcing everyone to think about a prayer of conversion. Maybe, while everyone else is uncomfortable, right? Maybe it's our discomfort that we sit in these places and we simply deeply pray and we extend our love and we are just living the way that Jesus calls us to live. So one primary rule of peacemaking Leave your chick tracks at home. That does not look like Jesus' love. For those of you who don't know, these are tiny little cartooned tracks that people used to hand out, and some people still really hand out, that depict the scene I just described with you. The person you're standing here and the person's coming for Jesus and all these little drawings. It's not the love of Christ on display. If we do things like this next weekend, if we try to convert anybody that's not, it's just not what Christ's love is going to look like. It'll look more like this. Excuse me, do you have a moment to spare to uh, talk about Jesus Christ, right? This girl, that's what's going to happen. If we try to do this... Do you have a moment to talk about Jesus next week? Everyone's going to look like this, okay? So that's you don't want that. You're you're aiming for something else. The other way what we can do next weekend is we can serve. So here's some places where we need your help. We need a setup team and a cleanup team. We need a welcome station. John Signorino has been helping out with that. And so if you want to go and serve for people welcoming and just invite them on into the community and get them orga- organized. Uh, we have a photographer. I think Tina's might be coming to help photograph, but if you are a great photographer and you want to help us take some great pictures of all the things God's going to be doing next weekend. We'd love to see it. Our social media liaison is Lauren. So if you want to help and make sure to hashtag and tweet or make signs for those things so we can know how to get the word out, because this is part of the reputation of God in our community. Pamela Simpson is helping out with the children's activity station. And I got face paint. This is all you got to do. Can you draw a dove? And if you cannot, then don't. But it's going to be a very simple outline. It's just a stencil. I'll actually have it. You can just put it right on the cheek and just outline it. There's only three colors available, white, green for the olive branch, and blue. And so we'll have that for kids. And we're going to set up a prayer wall here where people can come and put their prayer or their hope for the event that weekend. Um, so if you want to help me with that part, and then I need a balloon wrangler. And I know this sounds weird, but I need somebody to help me pick up balloons from Diddums, and we're going to drop balloon bouquets at the various stops along the walk so people can kind of look ahead and see where it is that we're going and and do that. And I need you guys to show up and love people. Look, this is just not going to work unless we all do it together. And you can invite anyone. any and Any and everyone's welcome. And I don't know about you, but I've been feeling pretty discouraged in the news with the issues of racial injustice in our community and and in in the United States at large, with the way in which we speak about one another in our political sphere, um, with all of the—it feels like every day we open the news and there's some additional tragedy, some more big boat of refugees, some more horror to partake of. But simply being in a room with people who are also feeling at a loss and practicing peace is starting to change— how I feel about the world, how I feel about just my own community on a daily basis. And I wanted to share with you this clip that's kind of been inspiring me lately from Senator Cory Booker. Donald
1: Trump tweeted, and he said something to the effect of, I know Cory Booker better than he knows himself. Or If Cory Booker is the future (laughs) of the Democratic Party, then they have no future. I know more about Cory than he knows about himself. What has he got on you? Well, let me tell you right now. (laughs) I love Donald Trump. I'm going to say that. What? I don't want to answer his hate with hate. I'm going to answer it with love. I'm not going to answer his darkness with darkness. I love him. I know his kids. I know his family. They're good, the children especially, good people. And this is the problem he has, is that he wants to, first of all, I feel lucky because he was attacking everybody else in the Senate, from John McCain to Elizabeth Warren. I was feeling left out. Now he's (laughs) finally got them. Thank you, Donald. I finally feel like I'm important enough that you will attack it. when you read that and he says, well, what else can that mean? Uh, I know Cory Booker better than he knows himself. What is that supposed to mean to to you? He wants us to be speculating. Ooh, it sounds so sinister and this. It does. I don't care. I love you, Donald. I pray for you. I hope that you find some kindness in your heart, that you're not going to be somebody that spews out insults to your political opposition, that you're going to start finding some ways to love. And I'm going to elevate him. I love you. I just don't want you to be my president. I don't want you to have the White House to be spewing that kind of mean-spirited hate that belongs, doesn't even belong in a playground sandbox. The reality is, I'm sorry, I'm just going to keep loving on him. uh, and I'm going to tell the truth about him but I'm going to keep loving on him, praying for the best for him and his family. That kind of vitriol, uh, that kind of meanness has no place in the presidency. Bring it on, Donald. Show your truth. I'm going to show mine. Love your brother.
0: Did that just, like, the journalist like, yeah, but don't you want to talk more about it? He's like, I'm going to love him. And now they don't talk about it anymore. It's all done. I'm just going to love him. Now, I, honestly, I'm not taking a side as to this is not a political statement. It's the practice of loving somebody who's giving us something different than love in return. So Martin Luther King Jr. talked about it this way. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Love is the durable power in the world. This creative force so beautifully exemplified in the life of our Christ is the most potent instrument available in mankind's leaders of the past, and their empires have crumbled and burned to ashes, but the empire of Jesus built solidly and majestically on the foundation of love is still growing. We answer pain in this world with love. We answer hurt. We answer fear. We answer all of the the fear and the discomfort that we have coming forward with people who don't look like us, don't talk like us, don't show us whether Republican or Democrat, my encouragement is to lean into the teachings of Christ and to answer with love. I love the image of this Psalm. Psalm 85 says, steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. And this is the verse, righteousness and peace. Shalom will kiss one another. The word there for the steadfast love is chesed. It's that enduring faithfulness and kindness. And the faithfulness word is like Emma, It's like truth. Chesed, God's ever-loving faithful covenant and truth will meet. And righteousness and shalom will kiss. When we start to pursue peace, when we start to work to make peace, Jesus, overlooking Jerusalem, comes down, and there's a church that remembers this event. It looks like a teardrop to remember his tears. He sees Jerusalem, and he says, as he sees Jerusalem, he starts to weep over the city. If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus knows that there are things that make peace. And returning an insult with love makes peace. The interview is over. It's not in the tabloid anymore. That didn't get talked about 16,000 more times because people weren't going back and forth. And that happens on all sides of our political aisle. Everyone's participating in it. But Jesus gave us this call, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. And I happen to know that Senator Cory Booker is a Christian because he spoke years ago at the Willow Creek Leadership Summit and was super impressive there. And that teaching that he gives when he sits there and he says to the journalist, I'm going to love. I'm going to love him. Love you. Love you, Donald Trump. Love you. That's hard work. You don't think that's hard? That's hard. But these are the stories that change the world. It is the story of Jesus that changes the world. So Kevin, I think, is going to help us learn a song that we're going to sing next weekend really quick as we close. And the words are very simple. Peace, salam, shalom. That's it. We're going to practice this together, and we'll be able to sing it with one another next weekend. Peace, salam, shalom. Peace, salam, shalom peace, salam, shalom, peace, salam, shalom.